Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films for the 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we are delighted to be joined by composer Daniel Pemberton. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for coming on, and uh, and thank you for all the great music over the years. We uh, we were realizing as on the way over that like, you've scored so many of our, our favorite shows that were even shows we're watching right now, like Slow Horses and The After Party. <laughs> and if your British Great British Menu is still on TV, and yeah, some favorites in our household like Peep Show as well. Really incredible uh, CV there. <laughs> Peep Show is still why I'm famous, like not famous, but in Britain, if I tell you, like, they're like, oh, what do you do? And I go, oh, I do film and TV. I do film music. I say film music now. Oh, I'm a film composer. Oh, have you done it? What, what have you done? And often I'll, I'll do a list. Oh, I've done this. Now I didn't see that. Oh, I did this. I oh, was that the one with Ashton Kutcher. No, it's the other Steve Jobs film. This one. Oh, and I didn't see that. Oh, I don't watch movies or something stupid. And then I'll go, oh, oh but I, do you ever watch Peep Show? And they're like, yeah. And I go, you know that noise that goes, they're like, oh my God, you did that. That's amazing. Check it out, everyone. It's the guy who did that noise. <laughs> I'm like, but I've done really big, like serious, like serious <laughs> films. And still I am forever known as the guy who did these two seconds interstitial stings in Peep Show. You've done so many amazing films. You did an under 90 minute film, Brian and Charles, which we love on this podcast. Big fan of Jim Archer's work. Um, and, and the movie's really special. Yeah, it was really nice to do Brian and Charles because I kind of, I, I always felt I would spend my life doing like weird idiosyncratic British indie movies and somehow I ended up doing quite a lot of American Hollywood ones which was never really my intention and I kind of wanted to do something that was you know like more British um, and I remember Brian Charles came along and I remember thinking this is such a beautiful film so unusual and quirky it's also set in Wales and I love Wales I kind of go there on holiday every year and I have a very special affinity with the landscape of Wales um, so I thought, oh, great, I'll do this, like, you know, tiny sort of indie movie. And then it went to Sundance, was a huge hit, and then got bought by Universal. And I'm like, this just looks like I've done another big movie for Universal. <laughs> <laughs> Did you work on the uh, the infamous Charles Rap at the end the, of the film? The Charles Rap at the end of the film was actually my idea. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, we should do a rap track with Charles and end the film on it. Um and it was really cool. That was a real last minute addition to the to the um, the film. And, you know, like I was trying to score that film, like the way I kind of felt it wanted to feel like was like Vaughan Williams, if he only had a few sort of crappy synthesizers. There was that side, which is very kind of pastoral, sort of melancholic synthesizer world. And then I kind of felt we should, like, I wanted the story to continue because uh, if you haven't seen the film i don't want to give too much away but there's this character called charles and he potentially goes off an adventure at the end and i wanted a kind of post-credit sequence that would explain his adventure for you doing a rap with charles rapping about where he went felt like the best way of doing it and um it was like yeah it's good it's a successful successful rap and it was it was fun working on that song with the with the, the writers and things and just getting these these uh, lyrics through. 
think also when that film ends, you don't want you don't want it to end. You've fallen in love with these characters, so it's just like a nice like two minute dose of Charles. I know I could like I could definitely have more Charles adventures. Like it's when you get these movies, I don't know, like Marvel and you know iron man turns up or the hulk or something i'm like yeah okay whatever but i would love charles to team up with like if there was a movie of like robocop and charles like paul verhoeven style robocop and charles buddy mismatch but buddy cop movie you would go and see that people would definitely watch that cinematic universes are all the rage i hope someone with the powers to make this happen is listening i know i do i used to joke that the future like i was like in the future you'll be able to just type in whatever you want to see and movies in the future will literally be James Bond teaming up with the Terminator to fight Scooby-Doo and Alien in, I don't know, um, in the car from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But even when I say that, I'm like, I'd probably watch that movie. I think that a lot of people would have seen most recently is probably the two Spider-Verse films, uh, both Into and Across the Spider-Verse, which came out just last year. Yeah, that's my new... That's my new claim to fame. Before I resort to the peep show pop, I will try and hit them with Spider-Verse. And they might go, oh yeah, I've seen that. The first one, they'd be like, oh, is that the one with Tom Holland? I'd be like, no, it's like it's the animated one. Oh, the cartoon. No, the really, <laughs> really good, highly acclaimed, highest rated superhero movie of all time. That one. Uh, yeah, so I've just done, uh, yeah, we just did Across and Into, which were both very intense uh, but enjoyable films to work on. And it's very nice to see the world get very excited about them. Outside of doing this podcast, I work for a cinema company. And, and when uh, the Across the Spider-Verse went onto the calendar, so many people were coming up to it. When's it coming out? That, that was a film with a lot of anticipation around it. Yeah, it's great. Because when I did the first one, I remember working on it on Into the Spider-Verse and thinking this is phenomenal. And every now and again, you work on a movie and you're you're like, okay, this is really special. And I really remember thinking if the Spider-Verse is going to blow everyone away, it's going to change everything. People are going to fall in love with this movie. And what I didn't realize is when you work on a movie, you slightly like drink the Kool-Aid of the movie, so to speak. You get so into the world and the characters and trying to make it the best it can be that you forget most people's experience of a movie off and on is just a title or a poster and they don't always know the work that's gone into a movie. You know, they're kind of just thinking, what's the big star or what's the marketing? And so when Spider-Verse was first coming out, I remember thinking, this is going to be huge. And I always try and go to the cinema the first weekend and buy a ticket and go with a bunch of mates and just watch it. It's like my favorite way to see a movie. Like I hate premieres. Premieres are terrible because you're normally so tired. You've only just finished the movie. You've seen it a million times. All you can see are the the slights of the things like they cut my cue or they turn that down or like they put a song in there. And so you normally come out of a premiere genuinely quite annoyed. Uh, but going to see it with an audience who are paying and you're paying as well really makes a big difference of like why you do it. Because I always think about that when I'm working on a film, I think I really want someone, you know, someone's going to go and pay to see this movie. And I want them to have an amazing experience. And I'm always thinking about that experience. So going to see Spider-Verse, the first one, I was like, this cinema is going to be f- like pretty much sold out. Like, and I think I went to see it at the Empire Leicester Square. And uh, it wasn't even on in screen number one. It was like it was like the second. It was a big screen, but it wasn't like the super big screen. And I remember thinking, half the people in this audience are my friends. That's not good. And the film came out and it didn't, it didn't do like 
crazy numbers, especially in Britain. There was like not even any really advertising for it. And I'd tell people, oh, I've done this great movie. And they'd be like, oh, what is it? And I'd be like, oh, Spider-Man. They're like, oh, not Spider-Man again. Like, uh, well, they keep making Spider-Man. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, but this one's animated. And they'd be like, animated Spider-Man? I'm even less interested. And then over time, people come up to me and they'll be like, oh, I saw that movie. I was like, yeah, I told you to watch that ages ago. Oh, it's amazing. It's so good. And they're like, yeah, I know. I said that. And over time, I think the thing with the first film that's really interesting is I think everyone f feels they kind of discovered it. I think with a lot of these big Marvel movies, they're such kind of commercial and sort of slightly corporate juggernauts that no one feels like a sort of original fan, sort of like being a fan of Beyonce or Taylor Swift. Whereas the first Spider-Verse feels like more like being a fan of a band you saw play a tiny pub or a tiny venue. And you're like, I saw them when they played that place around the corner from me. So when the second film came out, they're all excited. And it was so great to have that with the second film of know that people are excited about what you're going to do. Sort of that thing when you're working on it being like, okay, this is going to really blow people's minds, which is the best when you're, when you're sitting there and you're going, okay, I've written this scene and loads of people are going to experience this scene and it's really good. And at the same point, if you do something where you're like, this isn't good enough, you're like, shit, I can't, you know, I've got to, I've got to do this again. And you, on Spider-Verse, we did that a lot. If something wasn't good enough, we'd just go, you wouldn't let anything slide. You'd just keep going. It must be quite nice if you know, you're sort of like, you're playing it to an audience. You can imagine the audience in your head and like, this is going to kill. Yeah. And the really weird thing is, because we've been, we've been doing these live concerts of Spider-Verse. And what's amazing is going to see a movie with an audience who knows the movie and can show their appreciation in a way you, you don't want them to do at a cinema because... In a cinema, I don't want people like clapping and shouting every five seconds and talking. But in a concert venue, fine. And and it's a really cool experience because it's such a satisfying film to like vocalize. You know, like here comes Miles. Yeah. Here comes another character. Yeah. Here's the end of this queue. Woo. It's like it's a it's a wild experience to have that. And there's not many films you could have that with, you know, like um, I went to see Oppenheimer live in LA last month. And I think it's a fantastic score. Ludwig's fantastic composer. It's a great film. But it's a hard film to go, yeah, <laughs> like I've just invented, you know, how nuclear fission is going to work. No one's going to stand up and go, F yeah, woo. <laughs> Whereas a Spider-Verse, you can just kind of go, yeah, all the time. It's really satisfying for that. And I guess at those concerts, that's actually audiences aren't watching it for the first time. No one's going to be like, keep it down. I want to hear this dialogue. They're like, yes, I know this scene. You know, yeah. so people are a bit more interactive. <laughs> Although I did do, I think I did one concert and I, was, I actually shouted out to the audience, has anyone not seen this movie? And I heard one voice and it was one of my sisters. I was like... <laughs> Like, how have you not seen it? <laughs> I told you to watch this. Uh, where do we, during that sort of uh, environment, where do we see you on stage? Are you playing live along with the, with the band? Um, yeah, on, on, well, only on a few of the gigs. They, they often tour it without me because I cannot do 70 dates across America. <laughs> um, and there's a million better musicians. I'm a pretty terrible performer. Um, I'm good at coming up with ideas, bad at executing them in on demand, let's say. Um, but, uh, on on Into the Spider-Verse, I play some keys and more noticeably, I pay a clicky pen 
and I whistle a bit. But the clicky pen definitely is one of those virtuoso moments that only a few people could really pull off. And then in, in, to, in across the Spider-Verse, uh, some keyboards and I have two things. One is I look kind of cool playing a rock guitar at the end and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm living out my, you know, schoolboy rock and roll fantasies of like, like shredding a guitar or a big concert. But unfortunately, the whatever coolness I attained from that is instantly undone by two scenes where I have to slap my face for about three minutes doing it kind of like... So there's like a whole bunch of scenes <laughs> where uh, the things where Miles is chatting to his dad early on. So I kind of thought, oh, that'd be cool to do live. Not really thinking about what an absolute Wally I'd look standing up on stage for, for three minutes. It's not like one bar of... And it kind of hurts after a while. Yeah. But basically, I'm giving you a pretty uh, half-assed rendition there. But if you really go for it, you've got to... There you go. That's a bit more of a slap. You can hear it's a better sounds and just slapping yourself on stage is 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 it's not a it's not necessarily a cool look you're not you, Jimi hendrix ain't doing that david bowie david bowie might do that actually he's the one of the few people who might but yeah you look like an idiot it's a nice little callback to your peep show stuff though I, i've only got about three ideas to be honest <laughs> so it's like with spider verse there's a lot of fans out there and, and the music is is one of the things that people are like really resonant i know so many people who've been like listening to the soundtrack on repeat they love the songs in it the vinyl is amazing like it does feel like the music and the visuals are so intertwined on on that film yeah i think the thing about the movie was it was like i really got given the space to sort of really sort of express myself and what I wanted to do and some films that's quite hard sometimes you have to be restrained because the the film re requires that kind of restraint and you should go with what the film needs rather than sort of force your own sort of ego on it but um with Spider-Verse you really could let loose and you had the kind of freedom creative freedom and the backing of the filmmakers to to do that and I, one of the other reasons I, I think I really love that film is I feel it it's one of the best reflections of what I'm trying to achieve through film music which is a kind of marriage of sort of avant-garde uh, more experimental sound techniques married with kind of more conventional melodic writing strong themes stuff that connects on an emotional level and trying to push those things to both together is quite hard and it's really satisfying when you you build a world that feels really sonically unique but also delivers on the kind of emotion and the storytelling and trying to find ways of like score like action is weirdly very hard to score in a way that's different and like because often at its core action is just adding energy and tension and stakes to scenes and because often there's not like spider-verse is good because there is some some emotional payoff in some of those things but it's still you know still quite hard to get those scenes feeling different mm. and th the action scenes of spidey definitely was a lot of a lot of time was spent working out how i could make them feel different rather than crash crash bang bang smack smack type thing we talked earlier about going to the cinema and, and as we are a film festival that celebrates under 90 minute films, I, I did wonder if a film's runtime ever 
comes into your decision-making process when you're planning what to watch? Do you ever think, oh, yeah, maybe to- a bit too long for me totally. right now? <laughs> I mean, it's like, if I'm going to cinema, I'm quite happy to luxuriate in a longer film often. Um, but it depends. It's like, I do love a snappy, I'll stretch to 100 minutes, particularly at home, more than anything, because there's a thing where just like, I just want to, I want like a blast into a different world that doesn't have to take my entire evening up um, and, out, and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with a long movie mm. I, I don't have a problem with long movies but there's definitely a thing that i love about like concise tight storytelling i can tell you actually the worst under 90 minute film i've ever seen at the cinema which was the spongebob square pants movie oh, and wow. um i i have a bunch of sisters and i can't remember how old they were but they were not very old at the time and i I was going to take them to the cinema and they wanted to see the Spongebob movie. From what I remember, there's like a sort of 15 minute sequence at the beginning with David Hasselhoff. And then the the actual Spongebob animated stuff is about 45 minutes long. I was like, this is just a car. This is just a long episode of Spongebob Squarepants with like some stuff with David Hasselhoff at the beginning. This is the biggest con of all time. I felt like like one of those parents who who takes their kids to winter wonderland or something and they just come out and go i've just been totally ripped off it's a spongebob movie absolute con i don't usually do this but this play means a lot to me and i wanted to make a dedication so i'll just say that this play is dedicated to the memory of my mother eloise fisher and to edward appleby a friend of a friend. Also, you'll find a pair of safety glasses and some earplugs underneath your seats. Please feel free to use them. Thank you very much. Our mission is to put on this fictional 90 Minutes Less Film Festival, and, and we'd love to get a, a suggestion from you to add to our, our film festival lineup. And uh, we've got a short list uh, which you sent in, and maybe we can just sort of talk through the list together and, and at the end of it sort of work out which one should be, uh, you know, eternalized in the, uh, the 90 Minutes Less Film Festival. The first film we sent across, Bang on 90 Minutes, Rushmore, um, or the Wes Anderson film. I think it's his second film after Bottle Rocket. Yeah, Rush. I mean, Rushmore was such a, like, just felt like a whole new energy that I hadn't seen in filmmaking when that came out. And I remember the first time watching it, this, is, this movie is, like, crazy. And it's interesting now you looking at it, whereas Wes's style became more and more pronounced. But you can see the beginnings of it in there. But for me, when I watch a, a film, I'm also very like basically spending most of my time pulling the score apart. And that was the first time the sort of seeds of what has become kind of like the Wes Anderson sound were sort of planted. Um, and there's a couple of things in there. So it's a, it's a score by Mark Mothersbaugh, who used to be in Devo and scores a bunch of movies. But that that is one of my favorite scores. That and the Royal Tenenbaums by him are two like really fantastic scores. And so I think the first cue is called like the hardest geometry problem in the world. And I remember reading about how he'd like sort of taken bark preludes and sort of like fiddled around with them. But he created something really unique, really interesting instrumentation, very different approach to scoring. There was that, and then there's this great drum, like just running running sequences just on rhythm, which 
might have been influenced a bit by, let's say, if you listen to some of my scores. Um, <laughs> and it's it's a really, I mean, it's a really fun film either way, because I think there's something about the characters in Wes's films who always have uh, ambitions of greatness in whatever they do, you know, and will, will push things as far as they, they can do, which I always really like. Like, I like seeing that on cinema. It's... Well, anyway, I like I like stories of anyone who's trying hard to make something beautiful and special. And it's a really entertaining film, Rushmore. It's a really solid, great characters. Bill Murray's great in it. Schwartzman's great in it. And it, it, it still stands up as one of, I think, the best Wes Anderson films. But for me also, just the introduction of that style and that world, especially the sound world, which, you know, later got taken on by Desplat, who kind of honed that sound, you know, really well but it feels like that's the genesis of it with mark mother's ball no totally agreed it feels really timeless like the film came out in the late 90s it doesn't really feel like a 90s film uh, but even when you watch it now it feels like it's in its own sort of bubble yeah i think when you do something that doesn't feel like that feels very unique and not connected like very idiosyncratic and very um unique to a, a, a like a singular voice i think those things can feel very timeless and it's something I try and do through scores. I kind of would be interested to know whether my stuff will sound dated in like 20 years or, or not. And there's, there's nothing wrong with stuff sounding dated of, of its time period because that can be awesome as well. And there's some other movies on, on my list which I think do feel very of their time. And that can also be very exciting as well. Yeah, 100%. I think this is, a, it's a, this is a worthy contender considering all of the things that, you know, it's sort of got Wes Anderson really out there. It put Jason Schwartzman at the front uh, of people, kind of brought Bill Murray back and then these recurring cameos that Bill Murray makes in all of the Wes Anderson films as well. It, it's a really fun film as well. I think another thing with a 90-minute film is if you're like, I want a 90-minute film, you kind of probably just want to like, you're like I, I don't want it too heavy. I just want an enjoyable Great movie, and I think Rushmore definitely delivers on that. For the last time, I'm pretty sure what's killing the crops is this Brondo stuff. The Brondo's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. So wait a minute. What you're saying is that you want us to put water on the crops? Yes. Water. Like out the toilet? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be out of the toilet, but, but yeah, that's the idea. But Brondo's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. Do you want to do Idiocracy next? Yeah, let's uh, do Idiocracy. So that came out in 2006, directed by Mike Judge. Uh, amazing cast in this film. Yeah, Idiocracy is interesting because I, I kind of saw it again really recently, partly because I wanted to watch a film under... I genuinely wanted to watch a film under 90 minutes. <laughs> yes. I'd been working on... Like basically, you know, I might be working on a different score and I'd be like, really intense. And I'd be like, I just want to switch off. But I don't want to watch a, a, like a TV series or something. I want to watch a movie. Idiocracy... I need to rewatch that. I think the thing that's really fascinating about that movie is what you really need to watch it now because well, it was, I think it was 2006. Uh, when that movie came out, it kind of bombed and you, you can feel in the movie, there's a lot of voiceover, there's a lot of explaining things. And if you are familiar with how movies work, if there's a lot of voiceover and a lot of explaining things, that often is because the movie's not been working and they're trying to find a way to chop it together. It, it sort of came out and was seen as a bit of a stinker from the beginning and was totally sidelined and made zero pence. But it is now you watch it 
and you can see the kind of the clunkiness and the diff you know you can see the film is not perfect but it's so insanely like ahead of its time and you watch it now and the world we live in now is is so close to the like the world they're describing it's terrifying the rise of the um how would i put this politely the the celebration of being misinformed or uninformed and basically being a bit of a moron how that has come to dominate culture and dominate how we you know we view things how we talk about stuff how we talk about culture how we talk about politics how we talk about the world what's funny about idiocracy is it is a it is it has lots of elements where you're laughing at stuff which is completely moronic there's a guy gets kicked in the nuts a lot right like everyone watches this show with a guy getting like like basically kicked in the nuts and i'm watching it and it's, it's genuinely really funny like just <laughs> I found myself really laughing at this guy getting kicked in the nuts a lot. And I'm like, I am just as bad as everyone this movie is lampooning. And so it's a, it's a very much a guilty pleasure. Um, it's got some of the best scenes of someone getting kicked in the nuts that I've seen in a movie for a long time. Um, but as a, a sort of history piece, it is sort of terrifying and also so prophetic in terms of the future, like the kind of, Trumpy, um, divisive. No one really cares about anything as long as you shout, "I'm a winner." And uh, the only thing we haven't really got to yet is sort of killing people live on television for entertainment. But you know, even if you look at some of the TikTok, YouTube stuff where people have died doing really stupid things for clout, it's which is really sad. You know, we're not far off. Yeah, I think it's that, uh, you know, desire to be seen like that and people pushing it and pushing it. But it's like Mike Judge, he's so ahead of his time uh, with this uh, with this film. And and I think maybe the distributor got a bit scared of it at release because they didn't really promote it. It was one of those films that they sort of manufactured to fail. But uh, but I think it just found an audience on DVD and, and it's sort of a firm favorite amongst fans of Mike Judge's work, fans of comedy um there and i guess like that and office space for a nice yeah. double bill and fans of people seeing people get kicked in the nuts well, that's, a, that's yeah. an important one <laughs> it's, also a, got, it's also got a great score by uh teddy shapiro mm. and it's one of those scores that is you almost don't hear anymore it's slightly like old school i, I mean that in the best way possible it's just really exciting dynamic and it's got a like the, the kind of, I, 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 really around that time, 2006, film scoring really changed in terms of, there's a very boring talk I could give about the prevalence of industrial music compositional factories under certain composers um, that came to dominate Hollywood and how those working practices changed how music was really made for films. And... Uh, it feels like we're kind of moving away from that a bit now, but um, that score has sort of like some real moments of orchestral splendor and um, weight to it that, that are like kind of slightly old fashioned in a in a brilliant way. Teddy Shapiro is so good at comedy. Often see him in like rom-coms and comedies and sitcoms. Basically, and Teddy Shapiro is a really good composer. Okay. And everyone thinks of him as a comedy composer, but like there's things like bombshell or destroyer mm. he did severance oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like a really good composer but uh, everyone thinks him as a comedy guy so it's like a lesson to not do too much comedy 
Aber ich will nicht. Ich will nicht weg. Up next, Run Lola Run, uh, 80 minutes. We're going down in run times as we're going here. <laughs> run Lola Run, I think, is such a fantastic kinetic movie. I hadn't watched it for ages, and I rewatched it about, I don't know, six months or a year ago. And it feels so of its time in a way that is really fantastic. There was a, a sort of time in the 90s when... Looking back on it, it's very exciting filmmaking. It was very, there were lots of new filming techniques that people were getting very excited about, which were kind of like time lapse, that sort of attempts at trying to do matrix bullet time that weren't matrix bullet time, but basically getting someone to stand still and sort of running around them a couple of times yep. and then speeding it up. <laughs> um, and also like sort of full on techno or electronic music. And I think. Lola does that so well. It's got a great story. It's got a great, it's got so many great little devices in it. Um, you know, it's basically the same story three times. The butterfly effect of tiny little changes and how that can change the outcome of your life. But I love the, aside from the satisfying resolution of the story, the little resolutions of the people she bumps into and you get the Polaroids. And you get that excellent noise, which is like the flash, which I can still remember now. And I think when you have movies, when you can remember visual, sonic stuff that sticks with you, it's it's really powerful. And there's so much invention in that movie. And it's got like, like so much energy and it's really fun. And, you know, it, it's the sort of film you need to watch with a good distance from seeing it the first time because you'll remember everything that happens. Um, but it's it's a great watch. And, it, and it's, again, that's a you know film director who started with like tiny movies and then all like, later movies got so long. Yeah, that's true. Tom Tickver ended up working with the Wachowskis on some very long uh, films. <laughs> yeah. But I still think that's his best movie. Mm. And, um, and it's just got so much. I think there's a thing, also, if, again, there's so many things that feel really 90s about it. Like the super iconic uh, Franca Patente. Franca Patente, yeah. Like her look, like just the kind of strong look of a central character. Uh, th the crazy animation, yeah. which I'm always like, why is this animation in here? This is like, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. This is a movie. It's all meant to look a certain way. It felt like like a, like a like an individualistic movie. And I loved that. And I, I kind of wish we had a few more of those at the moment that had that that commercial energy i think there's some really fantastic new voices coming out in cinema but i love the kind of mainstream entertainment aspect of run lola run yeah because it's a you know, especially for audiences over here and in the us you know, it's a it's a foreign language um experimental thriller um with by some guy you've never heard of but it did uh, it did the like indie film thing it played at all the right festivals and it got this great word of mouth and i think because it came out in the 90s it was when dvds were you know at their heights and videos and it had a great cover you yeah. know, and it was so iconic. Like, I think that poster of her running, like, I can imagine in my university dorm room, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think like the closest today would be like the Daniels um, with everything everywhere all at once. And that, that's felt like the first time 
I've seen a kind of really unique new voice cut through to, to the level that I feel that movie did with a film that's really kind of feels like nothing you'd sort of seen at the time, but also is immensely entertaining and is sort of vying for a kind of more mainstream sensibility, which I kind of deep down, I, I, it's really hard to pull off. I think it's like making any movies hard. Um, it's hard. It's easier from both making a movie or scoring a movie to play it cool and leave a lot of things unsaid. And that can be very powerful because the audience fills in those blanks and you look cleverer. You know, it's like a painting where you don't actually try and, you know, it's so abstract. Everyone else, oh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Whereas if you really, really, really try and paint something that's like recognizable, this, I'm starting to sound like a bit of an idiot here. <laughs> this is like me trying to like dismiss like all the kind of most important uh, movements of art over the last uh, hundred years, which I'm not. But there's something about trying to make a satisfying, thrilling piece of cinema that really excites an audience and doesn't pander to them. And I, I like it when people can pull that off with their own voice. Absolutely. And it was, a, I mean, it was a really good use of a low budget. Like it was made for not much money at all, but because it's three stories, you know, the, the story three times, you have don't have many locations. You reuse the same locations quite a lot. And I love how they bake the 20 minute time um, deadline into the 80 minute runtime, you know, so it's very much a time focused film. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great movie. I mean, it is like, it is a really, really enjoyable movie. And I would happily watch that. I think, even though you know, I still remember what happens. I could happily watch that over and over again. I think there's more more detail the more you you look at it. And um, Tom Tickra is an amazing director. He not only writes, directs, edits. He also um, contributed to the score. And he he is a composer, isn't he? That's his. Yeah, uh, I mean, he he scored Matrix Four with. Um, oh yeah. Oh, man, I can't remember the other guy's name. Like he's a good composer. But basically, the original Matrix music by Don Davis is like so iconic and such a part of what makes all, all the kind of your connection with that movie and it's weird because i used to not i remember first seeing the matrix and actually being a bit dismissive of it and i remember thinking this isn't everyone's saying this is really cool these guys are walking around like they're sixth formers who think they've got they've got some leather jackets and some shit sunglasses and nokia flip phones that they're really cool and i was like this is not cool they had some stuff backed up on mini disc that is cool loads of time for mini disc but everything else not so cool. And I remember thinking the score, not very excited by the score. And then I watched it. Yeah. And this is like 20 years ago. And then I went to see it at the Prince Charles, the new version of it, like the, you know, the, the remaster. And I was like, holy shit, this film is amazing. It's aged so well. It looks so great. And I was like, it's, I don't know what it is to do with the physicality of the sets or the physicality of the movie, that kind of world. And also the music, the music is great. Like the score is great. The, the opening theme, I didn't realize how much that was contributing to the, the feel of that world. And then I went to watch Matrix 2 and 3 because uh, I was like, was I wrong about them? <laughs> and no, I wasn't.
to move on to our next film. Uh, this is a big one, Koyan Eskatsi. A lovely 86 minutes, but um, but a big movie in terms of what it tries to cover. Yeah, I would say there was something like Run Lola Run, for instance. That is a quick movie. Koyan Eskatsi is, is more like, okay, I want something heavy and serious. And interesting, like it's a good connection, Koyan Eskatsi, to, let's say, Run Lola Run, in that there are so many amazing filming techniques in Koinaskatsky, which now we so take for granted, like time lapse. And you can see the impact they've had on filmmakers down the line. But at the time, that's completely groundbreaking. And Koinaskatsky, I think, um, if you haven't, if you don't know about it, it's a it's a movie that is basically has no dialogue. It has a fantastic score by Philip Glass, by and it's, got, uh, it's just footage. Some of the most amazing footage of the planet, human life and society. And it just moves between these this imagery. But the storytelling in it is really powerful in that thing I was talking about earlier, where it's like sometimes you don't want to say too much and the audience has to fill in the blanks. And something like Koinskatsky, that's so powerful because it's it's presenting all these images of nature, of mankind, of cities, of computers, um, of animals. And it's a, it's a phenomenal, like just from a visual point of view, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. But just the way it makes you think about the world and your place in the world and what we're doing to the world. There are a few films that have had that impact on me. And... The score is groundbreaking, like one of Philip Glass's best scores. And if you ever get to see that on a big screen, 100% see that on a big screen, it is phenomenal. However, the sequel, not so good. Like, because the score <laughs> in the sequel for me is like, Kwanaskatsky, the score is brilliant, right? Poi Wanaskatsky, which is the sequel, it's Philip Glass, it feels like he's playing a C major chord building up over about 70 minutes. And after a while, I found it less, let's say, less impactful than the the previous film but another thing about Konoskatsky which people don't really think about they just think oh yeah cool visuals and some music great so there's films like Baraka which is also a, a great movie but Baraka does not have the impact of Konoskatsky for me because it doesn't have the same power behind the choices and the same power behind the score because I think um, I remember reading about Godfrey Regier. He's really interesting. And like the way he approached that film and made that film is really worth reading about because it's, it's fascinating. And the way he looks at the world and what he wanted to achieve with that movie, which no one had done anything like that before, really, um, is what I think makes it stand the test of time. And the, and again, also the impact it's had on other filmmakers in cinema is is ginormous you know even like i'm quite good friends with gareth edwards and you know his two of his biggest influences are baraka uh which is obviously directly influenced by kwanaskatsky and kwanaskatsky in terms of like the visual language and the the scale of the the visuals you definitely see that in his films are like films about uh things you know films about life and I, what i love about kwanaskatsky is in 86 minutes you think about 
your birth, your death, the the rise of humanity, the death of humanity, the re-rise of humanity. And there's a couple of like fun gags in there as well. There's like they put some like fun shots in for the audience, keep you entertained. Oh yeah, like the the like sausages or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so you can have a film that makes you think all those things, or you can have a film that uh, you can see someone getting kicked in the nuts. Just a few questions. I'd like to ask you about your hobbies. Why do you want a room here? Do you smoke? Now, when you sacrifice a goat and you rip its heart out with your bare hands, do you then summon hellfire? It's a fairly straightforward question. Either you're divorced or you're not. Or do you just send out for a pizza? Do a little free base, maybe, from time to time? When you get up in the morning, how do you decide which shade of black to wear? Okay, I'm going to play you just a few seconds of this tape. I'd like you to name the song, the lead singer, and three hit singles subsequently recorded by him with another band. Our final film, Shallow Grave, directed by Danny Boyle. His directorial debut, in fact. Yeah, again, going back to Run Lola Run of these like exciting voices coming through that were approaching cinema in a sort of more punky fashion and new voices coming through, creating exciting, thrilling sort of cinema. And I think Shallow Grave is a great, solid uh, work. Mm -hmm. I mean, like Danny obviously blew up with Trainspotting after that and became, you know, one of the most iconic British directors. But Shallow Grave is a very exciting uh, piece of cinema from, you know, like a that's his, that's his first feature, right? And I've done a few things with Danny. And one of the things I really got from him is he is a very much a sort of punk filmmaker. And he, he does not, honestly, he doesn't care about He's not impressed by uh, sort of, let's say, uh, status and wealth and money and um, uh, size, you know, and I'm talking about this more in terms of like making a score. It's like some filmmakers, you know, they want the best lenses, they want the best, you know, sets, they want they want the score to be recorded, the best orchestra, all this kind of stuff. With Danny is like, he's more interested in anything like what 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 is the, the the most unusual what's the most interesting way of doing this how can i play with this medium and i think you look at his filmography what's really fascinating is he could easily go and do a certain type of movie over and over again and be very successful but he's always been wanting to play and try different things and always sort of push himself to, to do something different and never sort of rest on his laurels and He's a very exciting filmmaker. And I think you can see that straight away from Shallow Grave, which is, again, a solid, you know, a very solid, fun movie with some good twists. And it's, it's again, it, it, if we're talking about a 90-minute movie being something you just want to, like, be entertained for 90 minutes, it's, it's a really solid film. And also, it's the first time we sort of meet you and McGregor, is it? Yeah, uh, like, it was his big. Like, I mean, Trainspotting is his big, big break, but this yeah. put him on the map. And at the time, I think like Christopher Eccleston, who stars in the film with him, and Kerry Fox are much bigger. So it's like Christopher Eccleston, Kerry Fox, you McGregor, and you, you McGregor blows up. But they're all great. I mean, that's a, what I love about it. It's a small cast, and it's a small story, and it kind of, I guess, it's a lower budget, but it's set in a flat. You know, we're going to get some amazing actors. We got a sharp script. It's funny. It's a crime film. The audience, it sort of elevates the low budget because of the genre. I I think also it felt very British. I mean, mm. I'm sure people in Scotland will be like, no, it feels very Scottish. Um, but, you know, I love seeing like Britain on screen. Um, I think around that time, you know, as well as Danny, you had like Guy Ritchie with Lockstock, which felt more unique British take. 
And I think recently, you know, like um, I'm with, we're doing this interview in Peckham and, you know, Rye Lane mm, came yeah. out recently. Which also I think, under 90 minutes. Oh, really? I'll yeah, put Rye Lane on that list. Like Rye, <laughs> Rye Lane is a beautiful movie. And again, that was something where like seeing this, you know, uh, it's Rain Ann Miller, seeing bits of London on screen. I mean, I love seeing London on screen. I'm a real like nerd for locations and, and I'll be like, yeah, they didn't do that. Like, uh, in fact, one of the things about Last Night in Soho that is really impressive is the cab journey they take is accurate. It's street accurate in terms of one-way systems and turns, right? And you have to look out the window. And I actually brought this up with Edgar and he's like, I spent a long time making sure that was accurate. So I like that. I hate it when someone's running through Piccadilly Circus and they turn around a corner and then Canary Wharf or something. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I love seeing different places on screen because I think it really ch you know, changes the way you look at the world. I mean, cinema can change the way you look at the world. You look at like the cultural dominance of America in terms of how it's perceived in the world. A lot of that is down to cinema and how America presents itself to the world. Putting different different stories, different places, the places you wouldn't expect to see on screen, for me is very exciting, especially when they're places you recognize or you know, or you've, you've you know, like even going back to Brian and Charles, I love that because it's, it's Wales on screen and, you know, I love Wales. It's and premiering like, at the Sundance Film Festival and there's loads of Americans sort of watching it like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, because it was like another film in New York or another film in LA. It's kind of like, it's hard to do something you haven't seen before. But when you get these these films, that I think capture a, the spirit of a town or a, a place and it's somewhere that hasn't been on um, on screen so much, it is really thrilling. And you sort of want to bat for it. Like I remember when Rylene came out, we also live in South London, just like, yes, they're in Brixton Market. They went to the Peck and Flex. They went to the Ritzy in Brixton. You know, all these places that I have also been. I'm in the film. Yeah, I think it's nice when it happens. Like the worst thing is when it becomes like, oh, crap, this has become like a destination now for TikTok yeah. and Instagram. I, I, I live quite close to Bar Market and I go there for coffee most days. And it's testing because there are so many tourists now and they all go, there's like three stalls, which don't, which are not very good. One of them does generic strawberries with generic chocolate sauce in a plastic cup. And it's obviously big on TikTok or Instagram. And there's loads of great stalls there, but everyone just goes to this one stall, queues up in a sort of Chesington World of Adventures snaky queue thing, gets these things, and then takes their photo holding them in front of the bar market sign. And I, I just, it, it's sad when you watch the kind of, the lack of, discovery and the lack of adventure in people wanting to just do the same thing. I want to be like, look, look, why are you doing this? Over there's the house where they shot Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. <laughs> there's the thing from Harry Potter, which actually there's loads of tour guides who go past and pop it out. Or if you're into like very bad movies with Sean Connery, this is the bit where him and Catherine Cedar Jones were in the beginning of Entrapment. There's Booty <laughs> Jones's house. Um, so I don't know why I got onto that. Right. It sounds like you're just a burgeoning tour guide inside you. Um, I, could, I could definitely do. If, there, if anyone comes from abroad, I'm a very good tour guide. We have come to the end of your five film list. So we've got Rushmore, we've got Idiocracy, Run, Loader, Run, Koyaanisqatsi, and we've got Shallow Grave. And uh, if we were going to ask you which one we should screen at our film festival... Uh, is there one that stands out to you? Oh, this is a tricky one because it slightly depends on what the lineup is at the film festival. I think Idiocracy, I'm going to park as a kind of like catch that one at home, guys, as a kind of what makes that movie special is looking at it through the lens of today and how it predicted the decline of 
humanity, basically. The TikTokers in Borough Market. Very, yeah, very <laughs> accurately. Um, so that one's gone. I, it, it's a hard one because it's like, if you're at the cinema and you want, let's say, Quinn Skatsky is an unbelievably powerful, like, out of all those films, that's probably the greatest piece of cinema. But if you want something really enjoyable, the other three are fantastic as well. So I don't know what the lineup is. Like they're all good movies. I'm going to take out Shallow Grave as well, which I think is a great movie. But I also think there are other Danny Boyle movies which people can see. So we're down to three, right? We're down to Rushmore, Konoskatsky, or Run Lola Run. Um, who else do I know? Who else is on this this mythical festival? We had a lot of a lot of good movies in. I'm sort of imagining this film festival being a bit like a music festival, like lots of different tents you can go and uh, you can maybe go and visit. But if this helps at all, yeah, we have had people already submit Koyana Skatsi and Run Lola Run. Okay, uh, so well, they, they could be at the festival okay, already. If they've already been submitted, then that makes a decision for us. We're going to put um, Rushmore in. We'll get Wes down. We'll get uh, let's get Mark down to talk about the music and maybe reunite the cast, Olivia, Bill, and, and Jason. Yeah, okay, solid. As long as Koyana Skatsi is and Run Lola Run are also running this festival, I'm happy putting Rushmore in. Nice. No, they're definitely, they're in the file. They are, they are locked in. They're safe. Amazing. Okay. Well, there we go. Rushmore joins the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Thank you so much for, for contributing that, Daniel, and for talking about all of those amazing films. At this festival, if, uh, if we were to, say, give you a, you know, a, a copy of Rushmore and say, you know, put on the screening of the film, is there anything you'd like to add to sort of embellish the, uh, the auditorium? I think I would like to try and present it in the style of um, the play the very ambitious play. So that would be quite good at the beginning <laughs> is to present it with like the train tracks going, you know. Um, so we have to build a very elaborate set on stage, which yeah. have to be dismantled very fast, like they do with the Super Bowl. You know, when like Beyonce turns up the Super Bowl and then, or Rihanna, and then like, there's this huge set that gets built in two minutes and then gets pulled down in two minutes. So I need, that would be part of my rider. And I probably will not be at this festival as a result of this, where they realize the extortionate cost it's going to take to build <laughs> this very elaborate set just to introduce Rushmore. It's probably more than the budget of Rushmore to put on the screening of Rushmore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you could, uh, you know, maybe like curate the, the kiosk as well. Are there any sort of drinks and snacks you'd like to have at the cinema? Uh, yeah, there is. I mean, I, uh, I have a real soft spot for the very overpriced popcorn that is the Stephen Joe's popcorn. Oh, yeah. Um, which I, I actually really like, uh, even if it is somewhat on the pricey side. And it's very difficult because, I mean, this sounds like I'm being sponsored by Steph and Joe's, but hey, Steph and Joe, if you're listening, send me loads of your popcorn. It's lovely. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, uh, I'll often, sometimes if I know they don't have the things I want, I might try and find them. It's very hard to find popcorn. If you're in a fancy area, it's actually very hard to find fancy popcorn. I like fancy popcorn. I'm not a big snacker in the cinema. Um, I mean, the food options have got better, but what would I do? What would I do? I'd have fancy popcorn. Are we doing hot food or? You can do, I think it's your screen. You can do whatever you oh, like. It's my screening. Oh, yes, okay. Well, you. you need to have quiet hot food that's delivered <laughs> in a, what's easy to eat? What can you shove in your face without making too much mess? Yeah, and it's tasty. Not, no crunch. Croquettes. Okay. Croquettes. They're, okay. <laughs> there's a great chef. There's a great chef called Jose Pizarro who has a, a, bunch of Spanish restaurants near me and he's a very lovely guy and he also makes fantastic croquettes so I would get Jose to make um, some croquettes and that feels like uh, sort of the slightly ambitious pretension that uh, 
uh, the guy from Rushmore would approve of. That's pretty okay. For some Joe himself's popcorn. I'll have a you know like Crockett tapas yeah. uh, out for the audience, and we'll play Rushmore. That's fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us uh, today, Daniel. It's been so nice to hang out, and uh, I mean, thank you for the amazing music over the years. Like we've been at home, we're binging Slow Horses, we're binging After Party, and uh, and Spider Verse is on repeat on my Spotify list. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, enjoying it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice so you'll never miss an episode. You can also leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you have a moment, why not share an episode with your friends? Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. Enjoy those shorter films, folks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.